Finishing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Two years ago, the American people elected President Trump to come to this town and shake it up, and he has done just that. But I don't think they've seen the same intensity from House Republicans. Democrats ought to come in with a ability to say, okay, let's get off the dime now. Let's make some things happen. Let's work together. If they come in just swinging and against everything, then it's exactly what the people have said they don't want anymore. They can't stand any more of this. I think you're going to see Border Patrol, uh, along with the, the help of the U.S. military. Obviously, the military can't, can't detain them, but the, the Border Patrol will, I think, mm -hmm. do their best to keep these people from crossing in. It is a bedrock principle of our democracy that every vote is counted. And the Senate election in Florida must abide by that rule. I want every legal vote that was cast on a timely fashion to count. Exactly. No one here is asking that not to happen. This level of incompetence gives you no confidence about anything with regard to that office, and that's why we got to keep paying attention to what's happening there. We won't miss that deadline. It's too critical. We won't miss it. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome to the program. I'm Stacey Washington, host of American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Stacey on the right. All over the country, broadcasting live to you from the heartland. And uh, specifically speaking to you citizens, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. I'm pretty, uh, yeah, I'm pretty pumped up because we have a great show today. We have wonderful guests who are going to be joining us. Let me first tell you about that. And and I love having guests on the show. I love bringing new content and new ideas and everything to the program. And today is no different. We're going to be covering the Open Borders uh, group that is actually funding the migrant caravan to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Uh, we have some reporting from Avi Horitz, who he's actually down in amongst the caravan members, embedded with them, watching as Americans, American citizens and other foreign groups, uh, which ties to the UN and other places, are actually working to subvert American sovereignty, as they have done in Europe by working to subvert the sovereignty of European countries that want to control their borders. And so we're going to be talking to uh, Elena Asina. She is going to come on and talk to us about Operation Christmas Child. Go to SamaritansPurse.org to find out more, SamaritansPurse.org. And then we're going to talk about this uh, every vote must be counted recall nonsense. And we know that the votes have to be counted, even the ones that were added afterwards, even the ones that have illegal, like illegal aliens have voted, even the ones who that were sent in by email. The reason we have to count those votes is because they're for Democrats. Now, if all of these votes were pouring in for the Republicans, I think the Democrats would be singing a different tune. If we'd found a million or 500,000 or 100,000 extra votes that were all skewing to the Republican candidate, then the Democrats would have a horde of lawyers descend upon New York and or not New York, uh, Florida and Georgia and Arizona, and those lawyers would be there to stop all of this nonsense and to, uh, you know, protect the Constitution and protect citizens of America from having their votes diluted. You, you, you get the meaning here. So that would be happening. So right now I want to talk uh, about our daily confession. And today's daily confession, first, of, first we're going to the verse. The verse is Romans one twenty five. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now, I know this is one that 
we can use to teach a lot of different concepts, but what I'm gearing for today is disillusionment. Now, normally disillusionment is something that you don't want. You, you don't want someone to become disillusioned. And you might say, yeah, you know, what? why would you be talking about disillusionment as something that we want to happen? Um, disillusionment is is a necessary part of growing up. And the reason that I, that I say that it's a necessary part of growing up is that without disillusionment, we put a kind of utopian ideal on other people, on society, on situations. We expect something that is impossible to attain out of normal, everyday human beings. And so disillusionment, the definition, is a feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. And a lot of that you see, and let's just take marriage, for example, you see people who are younger, they've been married for six or seven years, and they they call it the seven-year itch, where around the seventh year, people become disillusioned with marriage. And they become disillusioned because after six or seven years of hard work and what they consider to be their very best behavior, their spouse is still the same person they were when they married them. And their spouse still has, you know, problems, maybe not the original problems, but the, the spouse is still experiencing things. And this kind of view also ignores the beam in our own eye. And so what ends up happening is we become disillusioned and then it brings cynicism and a negative outlook and this kind of, well, nothing's ever going to change. Nothing's ever bo- going to be better. And it also ignores the truth about us as humans, which is that we are fallen, we are sin-filled, we are depraved, and that the only remedy for any of that is a savior. People who have not yet experienced disillusionment and have refused to accept the fact that people are going to people, that's my little saying, but what the Bible says about us, which is that we we not only need the Savior, we need the Holy Spirit operating within us, helping us to strive for that higher standard and to work out our salvation together in concert with our Father in heaven, meaning that he's changing us from glory to glory, making us into what we're called to be. But we can't do it by ourselves. And so you see it in marriage, you see it in friendships, you see it in relationships, you even see it in families with siblings and parents and et cetera, where people basically get tired of having to forgive each other, having to have disagreements, having to have um, you know, negative things that happen between people. And so relationships break up, they break down, marriages, you know, people go through divorce and they you know, he- head out into the world looking for that new person who doesn't have the same problems as their current spouse, only to find that after they find that new person and the wonderful newness of, of love and first marriage wears off, this person has the same problems as the old spouse. And worse yet, maybe this person's problems are worse than the old spouse, you know, because we all put our best foot forward in the dating months and years and the first few months and years of marriage. But as we begin to be more of ourselves, our spouse begins to realize, our coworkers begin to realize, the people that we work with or or live with or our friends with begin to realize that we all come with our own little, uh, you know, carry on luggage of, of personal problems. And so disillusionment is the textbook definition that says you have this discovery that something is not as good as you believed it to be. It's actually a necessary part of growing up. Now, there's only one being who can satisfy the last aching abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The refusal to be disillusioned is the cause of so much human suffering and broken relationships because we love the human being, but we don't love God. We put the human being in a frame that is impossible to contain them, a place of adulation or elevation or admiration where that person or that group of people, you know, look at the way that people kind of worship politicians, if you will. Any, anyone that you place in a freeze frame of perfection or saying that this person can do no wrong, whether you're consciously doing that or whether it's a subconscious thing because you, this is what you want from that person, you're going to be disillusioned because the truth is going to be the opposite of what you have set up. And so we have to accept the fact that disillusionment is a part of maturing and begin to expect that the only being that can satisfy our desire for perfection is God. All others will fail us. And it and I'm not talking about catastrophic failure. I'm not condoning bad behavior or people not you know doing what they've promised to do, not answering their commitments. I'm not saying that per- personal problems or the fact that we all have our own carry-on luggage is an excuse for us not to strive to do better and to improve. But none of us can meet that perfect standard on our own. We can only strive for it through the assistance and and serving, acknowledging that we need God in our lives and that Jesus Christ is that ideal and our Savior. So we want to be people who rest all of our being in all that is God, knowing that he brings tremendous strength and vitality to any arena in which we're operating and that he can make all things new. And this goes for our marriage. It goes for, for all of these things, all of these relationships that we have with other people. So Romans one twenty five again, it says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. So we have to come to a place of disillusionment so that we can accept the people around us for who they are and what they bring to the table and then operate within that. So God has wrath against sin. He he wants us to be wise. He wants us he wants us to be in a state of reality where we acknowledge that the people around us are fallen individuals and and that we need not only do we need the savior but we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to those around us. And in Jeremiah 10, 14, it says, everyone is senseless and devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols for his molten images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. We are all senseless and devoid of knowledge until we ask for wisdom from our savior because book knowledge and education can only go so far if a person lacks common sense and wisdom. And if a person refuses to acknowledge the truths of scripture, that, that makes the knowledge that they hold, it's as foolishness because they cannot discern the truth. And so we want to be, I know this doesn't sound like what you're wanting to hear, but we want to be disillusioned. We want to see people in the proper frame of, of light. And it doesn't mean we lower our expectations or that we're uh, allowing people to wrong us or do things to us. That, that's not what this is about. It's about knowing that we put our trust in Jesus Christ. So Jeremiah sixteen nineteen says, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of distress, the nations will come to you from the ends of the earth and they will say, our fathers inherited nothing but lies, worthless idols of no benefit at all. And this could be said today. 
Could it not? Could, could we not say, oh, Lord, my strength, my fortress, my redeemer, my refuge, and then look around us and see all about us in America, the death, the destruction, the devastation, the lies, and say to ourselves that our parents have given to us, left for us as an inheritance, idols that don't satisfy, that cannot fill our hearts, and lies and, and the perpetuation of lies, a government that does not operate and function properly, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, we could say this. This is a timeless uh, exclamation of kind of just acknowledging the situation that we find ourselves here on earth. But in the end, if we are operating correctly, disillusionment does not lead to discouragement or giving up or, or a sense of fatality. Rather, it points us back to God so that we know, you know, people will fail. Businesses will go, you know, wildfires will come, tornadoes and hurricanes will ravage, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And he is our rock and our fortress and we can rely on him. We don't need to idealize people or the future or our work or or anything like that. Rather, we point to and keep our eyes trained on our savior in heaven, our, our father in heaven who cares for us and is intimately involved in every part of our lives. We're praying, we're reading our word, and we're having that daily appointment with God where we're setting that time aside for him and consecrating ourselves to him so that he can continue to work within us so that the disillusionment is more of a reality setting, if you will. You know how you have your filters on Instagram and places like that where you can you can go with no filter, or you can put a filter on to cover, you know, maybe your face is shiny or maybe you, you know, don't have any makeup on or maybe you didn't get much sleep last night. So you click through to a filter that works. Well, what we want to do is take the filters off and see things with disillusioned eyes, meaning the reality, which also gives us the ability to have sympathy towards our brother, sympathy towards our husband, our, our family, our coworker, what have you, and to be able to forgive and continue to expect good things knowing that God is working within that person as he's working within us and it gives us the ability to move forward without those expectations which means fewer broken relationships and fewer disappointments in the end because we do not set up impossible standards for people to live by so disillusionment a sign of maturity All right, when we get back, we're going to have Alina Asana right after these messages. Stay there. Every day in pre-born centers across the country, young women in crisis find refuge. Here's Roxy, nurse director for pre-born at the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Southern California. A lot of them come to us and they feel rejected. They feel alone. They're in a crisis situation. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to start. We believe that sharing the compassionate love of Jesus Christ is what really makes what we do work. Through love and compassion, young women facing tough situations get to meet Jesus Christ and their unborn baby on ultrasound. And I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. And it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and a picture of babies' lives that were spared. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. 
or go to preborn.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with the Legacy Moment. Wise thinking and planning can literally save your life. I wonder how many people have lost their lives and possessions because they just didn't think. You know, the teenage driver who got distracted and went through the stop sign. Or walking alone at night in a dangerous part of town. Or leaving your laptop unattended in a crowded airport. Or starting your car in an enclosed garage. Sometimes we just do things without thinking. We take a lot of things for granted. Wisdom is the practical, appropriate application of knowledge. It's God's navigational tool for living life. Wisdom is not fear, but it is understanding the relationship between cause and effect. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 12, gives us the challenge of wisdom. Wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. I want to read that verse again. Wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. I think that there are three important points we can make from this verse. First, wisdom like money can get you out of a jam. The old sage likens wisdom to money. If you're wise, you may not have a cent, but your wisdom can get you out of a whole lot of trouble. Secondly, wisdom goes beyond protection. It preserves, it keeps, it helps you avoid certain situations. And thirdly, wisdom should be our objective. We should pursue it. We should live to become wise. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. God wants us to be wise in how we approach life. Wisdom is our security system. Let's make sure it's turned on. Thanks, Crawford, and thank you for listening to today's Legacy Moment, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. You're listening to a best of edition of Stacy on the Right. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thank you so much for being here today. We are so excited to have our next guest with us, Selena Asina. She is the Operation Christmas Child National Collection Week spokesperson. And uh, November 12th through 19th is Operation Christmas Child National Collection Week. You can go to SamaritansPurse.org to find a collection center near you. There are 5,000 of them nationally uh, all over the country, places where you can drop off donation or the box itself or the contents of a box if you don't have the box. And so it's my pleasure to welcome Alina to the program today. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about how you first encountered Operation Christmas Child. So I was raised in a country in Central Asia that is restricted to the gospel. And I was raised in poverty. And I was raised in a lot of persecution because my family and I, uh, we were believers. And when I was around five or six years old, um, I was invited to a church along with my family. And when we got there, we had a beautiful time of worship, and the pastor presented the gospel to everybody. And then every single child that was there that day received an Operation Christmas Child shoebox and heard that God loves them, and that somebody living miles and miles away loves God so much that they want to share that love with them today. Okay, and so after you received the Christmas Child box, did you... Did you get them on a yearly basis, or was that the, your only encounter? 
that was my only encounter. Um, you know, as as in ministry, you know, our goal is one child, one box, um, because it's truly about you know spreading the gospel, spreading the good news of Jesus um, to every child that gets to um, receive an Operation Christmas Child shoe box. Wonderful. And then afterwards, um, well, first let's talk about what was in your box. Do you remember the contents of your box and what you loved so much about it? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so when I first opened my shoebox, and I, I remember actually that my shoebox was wrapped in this beautiful uh, wrapping paper that was pink and purple, and it had Disney princesses all over it. Uh, and as I opened that shoebox, I remember taking a really big whiff, and I realized that everything in that box was brand new. And to me, that was new. And as I started looking through the items, I found out school supplies. I had a box of crayons in there. I had this little heart. It was really hard. It looked like a rock. But then when you got it wet, it, like, just poofed up and it actually was a washcloth. Um, I just thought it was so neat. And then in the middle of my shoebox, I found a pair of pink plastic princess shoes. And with them came a picture of this little girl who packed my shoebox for me. And to me, this was my favorite item because I re- it made me ask why someone would do this. And it made me realize that there is a family out there who loves God so much that they want to share his love with me, and as a five-year-old girl living in such darkness and such heaviness and hardship, God used a simple shoebox to reveal himself to me for who he truly is, and that is, you know, a, a father figure who seeks um, a relationship with somebody like me. Wow. Um, and the shoebox also reminded you that even though your circumstances were dire, you weren't alone because there was another family praying for you and really caring for you from very far away. Right. I mean, I, um, as I walked out that door, my physical life circumstances did not change. And, you know, maybe they're not supposed to because God never promises an easy life. But what God did through a simple box and through somebody living in the United States um, was show me that I'm never alone and that even though we will, our entire life, face hardships, and go through the fire, Jesus will be right there with us, and that is what gave me hope. Wow. So now you uh, speak on behalf of Operation Christmas Child to let other people know how important their gifts are. What would you say to someone out there who's like, you know what, I'm busy, it's, it's Thanksgiving, how can my donation of $9 to make sure the box gets there or my donation of, of items for the box, how can that make such a huge difference? Why, why is it so important for me to participate? So I, um, the boxes that we pack, we call them go boxes and it stands for gospel opportunity. And what I always tell people is that as the ministry of Samaritan's first, um, our goal is not to make children happy, but our goal is to, um, in over 150 countries to be able to provide the tools to local pastors and churches to be able to witness to their own community. So when you go and you pack the shoebox, the most important thing you can do is the exercise once you drop it off and that's praying, praying for the kids who are going to receive the shoebox, but also um, most, a lot of the kids who receive the boxes are now invited to come back to that same church where they receive their shoebox, the same place, and uh, come back for a 12-week discipleship program, which we call The Greatest Journey, where they get to learn about Christ, they get to learn how to share their faith, and at the end of this program, if they graduate, they go through all the 12 uh, lessons in the 12 weeks. They receive a Bible in their own language. And so what 
people are able to do here. You know, the honor we have of being able to pack the shoebox um, and be a part of it is we get to go where our feet cannot, and we get to carry out the Great Commission. Um, and what I would say to people who, you know, are, um, are very busy right now, and I totally understand that it's just it's this time of year, you know, I would just encourage them um, to remember that Jesus said in Matthew 25, whatever you do for the least of these, do them for me. And think that God knows that child who's going to that box. He knows their story. He knows their name. He knows their need. And God can use even somebody living miles and miles away um, to be able to share the love of God to a complete stranger. Wow. Thank you so much for um, sharing your story and for giving your testimony here about what the Christmas Operation Christmas Child experience has has done for you and and leading you to Christ and gospel opportunities are what we as Christians want to participate in and facilitate and make a part of our everyday things that we do because that's part of the reason why we're here is to spread the gospel and make sure that everyone knows uh, the reason for our hope. So, um, anything else that you'd like to add that to kind of bolster the the people? If the, if you're in the listening audience right now, we need you to go to SamaritansPurse.org and participate in Operation Christmas Child this week with us. Do you have anything else for us, Alina? I would just honestly say um, that not only is it you know you have you're able to have such a, an eternal impact on a child, also it is a lot of fun to be involved in this ministry, and it's never too late to pack a shoebox. National Collection Week is this week, but you can also do this thing called Pack a Shoebox Online. So on our website, you can like virtually pack a shoebox, which is really neat. Um, mm. But also just encourage people by saying, you know, it, is, it never seems to amaze me how a simple shoebox can change the life of a child and what God, I've seen it happen over and over again, how God uses broken people and simple things to carry out His extraordinary plan. And, um, you know, through this ministry, you can be a part of it in such a and fun, but also exciting and amazing way. Mm, amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining the show today. Um, don't, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thank you for being here, and thank you for your work with Operation Christmas Child. Um, Alina Asina, thank you for your time today. So I think one of the things that really is touching is how she remembers exactly what was in the box. That's pretty phenomenal. I... I'm the one in our family who doesn't remember all the things. So sometimes I'll call my sister and say, do you remember when we were such and such? And she's younger than I am, but she remembers everything. And so, uh, you know, for her to remember what's in the box, especially from when she was so, so young, and even the smell of the new things in the box, it's pretty telling about how uh, impactful this can be and how wonderful the participation is. And also the picture of the little girl who packed her box. Uh, how wonderful to to know that, a child in a foreign land would see a picture of your child or a picture of your family and think, wow, these people packed this box. So it's a wonderful time for us to begin the kick off the holiday season. Next week is Thanksgiving, but this week is Operation Christmas Child Collection Week. And we're so glad to have you uh, participating with us. It's SamaritansPurse.org. You can go there and you will, uh, you'll, you'll not be like, you're not going to regret packing a, a box and participating in Operation Christmas Child. So thank you so much for uh, your time listening today and, and for joining in that with us. So I want to kind of run down a little bit of uh, a few news items, but I also, I found this piece and you guys know I, I spend so much time 
reading uh, different articles and kind of deciding, hey, what are we going to talk about on the show today? Hey, what's our deal? And I found this piece over at American Greatness, amgreatness. Hold on, I don't want amgreatness.com. And the title of the piece, because I know somebody's about about to get triggered. I just warn all y'all right now. Plenty of people are going to find this fascinating, but there will be be some who, who get triggered. And God bless you. Why America's minority majority will never happen. Now, you might be thinking, and it's by Edward Ring. You might be thinking, well, what, what like, why is, why is he saying that? Because demographics are the future. And when you see a population changing, there's really once, you, by the time you realize it's changing, it's almost too late to stop the change. And that is part of the reason why the Democrats are so intent on eliminating borders. Because once you begin population migration, the receiving population cannot withstand the onslaught and the cultural shift. Once it begins to happen, it's almost impossible to stop. And so he starts off by talking about this okay to be white uh, signs that have appeared. And originally they were the purview of uh, people who were, you know, they practice racism and they would post those as kind of an oppositional statement to all of this diversity talk, which honestly, speaking as a black person and listening to people talk about diversity, I've spent years listening to people talk about diversity, serving on a diversity committee, which I was there for the standardized test, standardized testing aspect. But there, I've heard and been to workshops. I've heard the speeches. I've heard the discussions. I've been in the room when people go around the circle and confess how they've been against diversity and they cry. I've done all that. And the reason I participated in that because I want to understand where these people are coming from. Because there is no diversity other than we're all different individuals. But in the body of Christ, there's, there's, not, there's not diversity in that God sees us as individuals who are different from each other based on how much melanin we have in our skin. God is much more concerned with the condition of the heart. The outer trappings, this is our temporary situation. We do not take these earthly bodies on into eternity. So we know that God is not concerned with what part of the world you were born in. It's what is the condition of your heart. But that being said, we have allowed our national conversation to devolve into a place where really race is the, it's the seed kernel of almost every discussion that we have. If it doesn't start off about race, it turns into a discussion about race And it's not only a turnoff for a lot of Americans, but it paralyzes conversation because in the racial discussion, there is a victor and a victim. And the victor is an oppressor and an oppressor is someone who needs to be stopped and punished and vilified. And the victim is a never ending situational status that really precludes the person who's been labeled as a victim from achieving their full potential. So that being said, this article starts out by talking about these okay to be white t-shirts, which even have now uh, branched out and they're no longer little pieces of paper that people printed out or wrote on. Now there are t-shirts on Amazon that you can buy. 
um, posters that have been printed out professionally that have appeared at Duke and Tufts and University of Delaware and University of Denver, University of St. Thomas and elsewhere. And, and what's so funny about them appearing at universities? Because universities are the spaces that are currently resegregating. You have to have a black student union. You have to have a black set of dormitories. You have to have black graduation at, at Harvard and Columbia. And when I hear this, I'm, it's honestly so unbelievable that you can't really comprehend like why would someone who is graduating from Harvard University or Columbia these Ivy League institutions where just having that on your resume means other resumes are going to get recycled you're going to get the first call back the first interview why would you want to limit yourself by saying I don't want to walk down the aisle with my classmates from this university because the whole point of going to Harvard besides the world-class education is the networking opportunities for those other well-connected individuals to kind of say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm working here at this place and they have an opening for such and such. And they asked me if I knew anybody and I thought of you. We were together in this class or we graduated together this year. How, why would you want to destroy that opportunity? Well, you would want to destroy it if you've been told that all of your white classmates are oppressors and you're a victim and you need to walk away from them, you'd have your own black graduation to commemorate your blackness instead of walking together as a class, a graduating class to commemorate the accomplishment that puts you in a distinct minority in this country, someone who graduated from an Ivy League university, an even tinier minority, someone who graduated from Harvard. An even tinier minority than that, someone who had a permanent tan who graduated from Harvard. Come on, why would you want to detract from that? So the, it's funny that the universities are the places where we're rolling back the efforts of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King would never say to a black person graduating from Harvard, you need to walk in a black graduation ceremony on a different day from everybody else. He would say, how is that? That's separate but equal. Why would you do that? They fought for the right for blacks to sit at the same lunch counters, ride on the same buses and graduate from the same colleges as everyone else only to now see the reversal of that due to liberalism and the disease that is this diversity mantra. So it's ridiculous, but it is true that if you put a piece of paper out that says it's okay to be white, you're liable to have some hate speech people come and say that just the statement, it's okay to be white, is some kind of white supremacy thing. So the author goes from there into talking about assimilation and how instead of calling it's okay to be white, the little signs, something that comes from white nationalists, that it is actually a statement about the inclusivity of being an American, which is considered by many minority groups to be a white thing. So I'll finish this up. I'll wrap up with what he said here in the piece. And we'll also take your calls at 866-963-2037. 866-963-2037. Keep it here. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful 
wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. You know, I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with 8 Days of Hope. I'm Will Addison, director of Urban Family Talk. We desire to be a movement of time tellers. In 1 Chronicles 12.32, it says, The sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the time, to know what Israel ought to do. In these perilous times, God is raising up a people of discernment who will see, pray, and act. We sound the alarm as watchmen. We cry aloud that God's people may be activated for His service. Join the movement at urbanfamilytalk.com. I was sitting at a motel, getting high by myself and looking at my mug shots. Just started crying. And through Dream Challenge, I have now hope and I'm free from drugs and alcohol. If you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, Adult to Teen Challenge can help. There are centers across the country and you can find the one nearest you at 855-END-ADDICTION or at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Donald Trump's America. Just days after President Trump in a tweet blamed gross mismanagement for the devastating California wildfires, he took a more sympathetic tone toward those affected by the deadly fires. We mourn the lives of those lost and we pray for the victims. And there are more victims than anybody would ever even think possible. Fires continue to burn throughout the state and so far have killed more than three dozen people and burned around 200,000 acres. In a Monday night tweet, President Trump said he approved an expedited request from California for a major disaster declaration. We will do everything in our power to support and protect our fellow citizens in harm's way. And we say, I think as a group, I can tell you as a group, God bless everybody. Over the weekend, the president angered lawmakers from both parties after tweeting that the state's poor forest management was to blame for the wildfires. At the White House, John Decker, Fox News. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Um, I'm I'm unpacking this article by, um, well, let me give you the author's name again because it's a really good piece. Edward Ring. It's fresh today over at American Greatness. Uh, the website's amgreatness.com. And in it, it's it's a lengthy piece. He talks. He starts off talking about this. This you know this idea that. Why people can't say it's okay to, for me to be alive because somehow just that statement of fact is a statement of racism. So the mere existence of someone white acknowledging that it's okay for them to be alive is utterly racist and has to be obliterated. It sends people into their safe spaces. Now, this is nonsensical. It's not clear thinking. But here, here it is. That, that's what we find ourselves battling and so he talks about the fact that when you make an overwrought fuss over someone writing it's okay to be white on a white sheet of paper and taping it to the wall at a, at a college, 
you make other people, millions of other people, you make them more prone to utter it. It's basically like, oh, this is taboo. Well, I guess I better go ahead and say it. You know, the humans have that pretty badly, but Americans especially, we as a country are those people. We find out that something is, oh, that triggers you, and then we've got to say it a million times and make memes about it and laugh and just go go all in on it. It's just a part of of being an American. Commentary on that, I'm not even going to engage in. It, you'd have to acknowledge where you are in order to see and orient yourself to where you want to go. So uh, you've got this Eric Kaufman. He's a writer for Unheard. He coined the phrase white shift, which he defines as the voluntary assimilation of minorities into the majority through intermarriage. Kaufman goes on to explain how this voluntary assimilation can occur, characterizing it as a process which will need active telegraphing as mixing won't be strong enough on its own to make much difference to social cohesion until the end of the century. Now, while Kaufman is writing about the United Kingdom, his prescriptions for assimilation apply in America as well. He writes that the left needs to back away from excessive accusations of racism and dreams of radical social transformation. Now, good luck with that. But this is what he's written. He goes on. He said conservatives should worry less about Muslims, Hispanics or the behavior of other minority groups and focus instead on defending the interest of those who seek slower cultural change. This is not just about immigration levels, but should involve ethnic majority citizens inducting mixed race children into myths of British or, in our case, American ancestry. In this context, multiculturalism is clearly the wrong approach. Now, multiculturalism has always been the wrong approach. You never see a family of people gathered around their table talking about how different everybody at the table is. Someone might say, you don't have the hair color of your parents. Your hair color is different from your parents. But they don't say, your hair color is different from us and you're therefore not a member of our family. What they'll say is your hair is actually not the color of me and, and your dad, but it's the color of your grandmother or your grandma on your dad's side or your great grandmother or your uncle. We often say that to each other at the table. You'll sit there and your, your child, your son will be holding their face in a certain way. And I, th- this happens to us all the time. My son doesn't really look like my dad, but he has a way of holding his face that reminds me of my father. And I'll tell him all the time, like, you're holding your face just like your papa. And my son always looks at me like I'm a lunatic, but it is to me, he looks just like my dad in that moment. I never tell my son that he looks like some stranger or that he looks like, you know, some other a member of someone else's family because that just doesn't make any sense. So if you carry that forward, because I I know this is just like, you know, groundbreaking for some people, but for most of us, we understand that we are one people group here in America and we all share a different ethnicity, sure, like on the surface, we look so different, but our historical underpinnings make us one people group. And the fact that America is the only planet on earth where all you have to do to become an American is move here lawfully. And once you have citizenship in America, you can retain your traditions from your your home country. You can still be proud of where you come from while simultaneously being an American. It is not like that in Germany or France or any of these other places that truly base their identity on an ethnic, a shared ethnic history that comes from their Germanic 
that's in the case of Germany, their Germanic ancestry. We actually have shared ancestry here. And if you want more about that, you should read or listen to on Audible, the book by um, Ann Coulter, Adios America, where she talks about the shared background that black Americans and white Americans share. We are one people group. If you are back, if your background stretches back to the civil war in this country, if you're white or if you're black, we're one people group. We share DNA at this point. Multiculturalism is an attempt to say we're all so utterly different and let's focus on our differences when the way to reach shared goals and aspirations is to focus on what you can do together, your sameness, and to operate within that. So you can be different. You don't have to be identical. You don't have to give anything up. But what you do is you focus on the positive aspects and you move forward in that. I had someone tell me, I asked, do you have a negative outlook about next year? And he said, it was Art Laffer when I was in Nashville on Monday, he said, pessimism doesn't get me anywhere. I have to have a positive outlook if I want to accomplish goals. Multiculturalism and diversity actually are negative concepts that divide and prevent us from operating together in ways that help us to accomplish our goals. This is, this is the reality that we have to start speaking about. So we don't want elaborate scaffolding of ranked victims based on race and ethnicity. We don't, can't, we don't want campus chief diversity officers, corporate human resource departments, pandering politicians. We don't want this obsession with race to be our new cultural identity. And in order to get rid of it, we have to say to ourselves and to each other, you're an American, I'm an American, we need each other. We need to be one people group in order to preserve not just our prosperity, but the very essence of our country. We must preserve it through acknowledgement that we are one people. And so are, am I still with the permanent tan? Yes. I, how, how do I change that? I don't. White people who lack the tan, you're not to change that. There is not a people group that should be uniformly demonized for being who they are. Instead, it's an acknowledgement that we are all Americans and that we can accomplish great things together as we have done and will continue to do if we throw off the mantle of victimhood and the obsession with racial diversity. So it's it's a long, a long piece, but I'm going to sum it up here. You've got demographics favoring an inclusive definition of white. And we'll go to the phones just right after this. I'm going to wrap this up. There's good news, which is that the entire paradigm of race and ethnicity is the defining issue of the left center establishment, and it is about to collapse. The race careerists are not expecting this. They can't counter it. And simply put, the white race is actually assimilating people of color at a breathtaking speed, not just culturally, but genetically. In 2015, more than 17% of marriages in America were across racial lines, and it's the reality of ethnic intermarriage that adds critical weight to the conservative argument for cultural assimilation. Just as intermarriage in America between immigrants of various European ethnicities propelled cultural assimilation all of the melting pot of previous centuries. So earlier this year, the Washington Post published a fascinating article headline, The Demise of the White Majority as a Myth by USC public policy professor Dowell Myers and his political science colleague, Morris Levy. 
Here's how we're wrapping this up. He says, under a more expansive definition that counts as white, anyone who so identifies, even if they also identify with another race or ethnicity, Myers and Levy write that the white population is not declining, it's flourishing. The Census Bureau's inclusive projections show a white population in excess of 70% of the total for the foreseeable future. This observation is backed up by demographic data and provides abundant reasons for optimism. Projections of racial demographics should reflect the great changes of the meaning of race in America. Remember, Italians weren't always considered to be white. They are now, but in the beginning when they first immigrated here, they were not accepted as a part of the white majority. Assimilation provided for that acceptance. I am not saying that we're looking for the end of white Americans through racial assimilation and intermarriage. But what I am saying is that cultural assimilation is of the utmost importance in order to maintain the America that we all know and love. We do not require multiculturalism or diversity. We require an acknowledgement that we are all one people group and that citizens of this country, lawful immigrants and natural born citizens, that we have something that's worth preserving and we should work to preserve it and turn away from and forever leave behind us this continual sickness that is the obsession with race and demographics as they divide. Let's go to the phones. We'll go to Gidget in Texas. Thank you so much for calling the show today. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I just wanted to say a few things about the article you're reading. Yeah, and, can you turn uh, your radio down? Because I can hear is, the echo in the background. All, I'm an African. I'm an African heritage. And I'm not... I'm neither liberal or conservative. I'm independent. And you talked about a victimhood, which so many conservatives talk about. And as a uh, non, as an independent, I just wanted to tell you, it's racism is not a victimhood. Racism is a reality, first of all. And also, um, I, I really take that as an insult when people keep saying that, because we're dealing with realities in this country, not falsehood. And as an African, I feel that when you made that statement about the colleges, first of all, um, as, you know, a college graduate, you know, it's nothing so off about, um, you know, having a graduation separated in separation. Also, um, you know, you talked about multiculturalism as well as diversity. Diversity means being included, not excluded. You know what I'm saying? But included. And um, I don't know where people that some, you know, with a conservative viewpoint are coming from in regards to those things, but it's wrong. And until we really reach a point where we're willing to be honest about things, that's when things are going to change. So uh, you started off by saying you're an African. So you're not a citizen of this country? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I am a citizen of this country. I'm African in my heritage. My parents came from Africa. Okay, but um, But you hold American citizenship. Yes, ma'am, I do. Okay, so you're an American. That's the first thing we yes. have to kind of establish, because I, if well, you're an African, foremost, then I'm an African. Oh, uh, well, so then you have so you have first off starting off with this conversation, 
you have an identity issue because if you call yourself an African and you identify more with an African nation than you do with America, then you're not going to be very helpful in working to move this country forward and to move away from, as you say, the exclusionary practices of some members of this community. Americans have to put the American ethos first before uh, cultural heritage, if you will, because the majority of our experiences as Americans, over 85 percent, are the same. 15 percent of our experiences that are different based on ethnic background, family status, et cetera, et cetera, are not enough for us to divide over. Now, you mentioned that diversity is about inclusion, but as we've seen more discussion about diversity, as we've seen an increase in diversity programs, we've seen more strife, more upset, more lawsuits, and more division. The entire mantra of diversity has served to divide us rather than unite us around a similar concept. So the first thing we have to do, and and you said conservatives are wrong and that you're an independent, but I haven't heard any criticism from you from about Democrats who are the purveyors of this nonsense, which leads me to believe that while you say you're an independent, you are actually a voting Democrat, is that we have to have something to unite around. Teams don't unite around how different everyone is and how everyone has a different shoe size. They unite around the fact that they're a team and that they want to win. In order to win anything, in order to achieve anything, in order to accomplish anything in a group, you have to have unity. And what you just shared with me is a lot of of really the seeds of disunity that we need to turn away from. So I'm sorry, but you are incorrect. You are either an American citizen or you hold allegiance to some country in Africa. If you say you are African, you're basically saying you're from a continent because Africa contains many different nations. So you would need to say specifically which nation in Africa you hail from. And then if that is where your allegiance lies, there is a solution for you. Renounce your American citizenship and go to that nation state on the continent of Africa and give them your hard work and good education and allegiance. But here in this country, we must turn away from the divisive diversity mantra and join together as one people group, which we already are, so that we can win. That is what we have to do. God bless. Thank you for calling the show. If you're leaving us, God bless. Have a wonderful evening from the heartland. Stacy on the right.